Well, good morning and welcome one more time. My name is Dirk, the preaching pastor here at Encounter Church. We're glad that you're here. And every time that we gather here together, I'm reminded that there's always brand new people either worshiping here in this space or online, watching on YouTube, Facebook Live as well. So I just want to say welcome to everybody. It's also a brand new series that we're kicking off here today, part one of four. This new series called Under the Sun, which we'll get to in just a little bit, uh, in just another minute here. But I figured you know, as long as it's like brand new series, brand new people, everybody here together, I thought that I'd do what I can to offend at least half of you by showing a picture of one of the most controversial figures in America today. This is Mr. Tom Brady. No, no, not the point. Um, and, and what I don't want to admit is that he's like probably an above average football player. Um, <laughs> You laugh, even if you're not a sports fan, football fan at all, it doesn't matter. Just what is important for this morning is that he does hold the record, the league record for, uh, for touchdowns thrown, for yards uh, thrown for. He holds the record for the most number of uh, Pro Bowl, which is like the, the all-star team of uh, every year, Pro Bowl invitations at 14, I believe. And then there's also those six Super Bowl rings. I don't like to admit it, but it's possible that he's more than just above average. It's possible you could say that he is maybe the best football player to ever pick up the ball. I mean, this is like the thing that he has set out to do in life is to be successful at this one thing, football. And he's made it. Which is so interesting this morning, for our purposes of digging into this series, he did this interview in June 2005, 60 minutes, he sits down with an interview, Steve uh, Croft, and, and just a just talk, just to unpack what it means to be successful in life, both on and off the field. And it caught me, this is, this is uh, an excerpt from his interview, and he's talking about this, let me just read it for you, he goes, you know, there's these times when I'm not the person that I want to be, how many of us could relate? But, but not with this, why do I have these three Super Bowl rings? And I think, there's something else out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is, I've reached my goal, my dream in life, but me, I think... It's got to be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. After three Super Bowl wins, he ends this with this. What else is there for me? And Steve Croft, his 60 Minutes interview says, what's the answer, Tom? And he just kind of trails off into the distance and he says, wish I knew, wish I knew. Like, that's what we're talking about here this morning. We're talking about how those words should haunt any one of you who have tried to set out to do anything ambitious in life. If you have set out to do and to be successful in any area of life, those words should haunt you because it comes back to you and it's like you could be wildly successful in that thing that you're trying to be successful in and, and finally achievement and then get there and go, there's got to be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be, right? I must be missing something, right? I mean, whatever your thing is, maybe it's not like be the best football player in the history of the game. Maybe your thing is just like, I want to be, like, I want to crush it at work. It's like this quarter, I want my sales figures to like top everybody else's, not just at that company, in my industry. 
You could be like, I want to end out this semester and have like one letter all the way down on my transcripts and it's not anything else but an A. Everything else is just last place to me. I'm looking for this one final thing and to get there and his words haunt you, there's got to be something more to it than this. If you're setting up on anything in life, maybe, maybe your goal is to, is to do that thing where you take little humans and you turn them into big, competent humans and release them out into the world. And finally, when you do that thing and you do it well and objectively, people go like, what is your secret? And you're going, now that I've done it, there's got to be more to it than this. What else is there in life? I hope in a, in a good, healthy way, like those words from Brady, like they, they haunt us this morning. Maybe success, ambition isn't your thing. Maybe it's monotony. And you're going to life looks like the same every single day, day in and day out. It's just on repeat. I wake up, I get the littles some breakfast, get them dressed, I, I, I make them breakfast, I pack them a lunch, I pick them up from school, I bring them home, I give them dinner, I put them in bed and repeat the next day and the next day and the next day. It's just like life is on this never-ending loop, this cycle. It's like Groundhog Day, a reference that a couple of you are going to get. Just repeats over and over and going like the monotony of it all. How many times I wake up in the morning and say, is this all there is, there, some, there has to be something more. Maybe you just feel like you're missing out on something in life. Like everything is fine and you're not bored and, and you're not without ambition and you're, and you're successfully chipping away at it, but you just, it seems like there's something else. I read this blog post earlier this week by this woman who's, who's writing and she goes, I don't understand it, earnestly asking the question, I have a good life. I like my career. I like my educational status. I like the people that I'm doing life with. She goes, I'm witty. I'm smart. I think I'm attractive. Everything seems to be going pretty well. I just wonder, is this all there is? There's got to be something else. She goes, like that feeling. I'm just waiting for that feeling. Like, like when the cold air starts to warm up a little and you get to go outside for the first time and it's, and it's nice and it's bearable and it's like the first spring day after a long, excruciatingly painful winter and you go out and the breeze just this fills up your lungs and it's like this, that like fresh newness. That's what it is. I'm waiting for that, she writes. I'm waiting for that to hit me in life. And I'm just not there. And I can hear those words of Brady echoed again. Is this all there is? There's got to be something else. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And so that's what we're doing this morning is we're going to go to, to a place in the Bible where somebody asks those questions and answers them with excruciating accuracy. It's going to be jarring. It's going to knock us off a little, but that's okay. Hang with us through the ending. When we introed this series last week, if you were with us, you remember I said there's like this parable of a man who climbs to the very, very top of the ladder in his life and in the latter years of it realizes the whole time he's been climbing a ladder that's leaning against the wrong building. And it's like, don't be that guy. Don't be that woman. We, we have lessons we can learn now not to climb up a ladder successfully, 
but in the wrong place our whole lives. Another way of putting it, Francis Chan, a popular author and pastor, said it one time, I just love it. We should not fear failure. We should fear being wildly successful in something that in the end does not matter. And so we're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes. You can follow along in the Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. If you don't have one at home, go ahead and take it. We love giving those away every week. Um, Also, the words are going to be on the screen behind me. If you're flipping to it, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, if you get to Song of Songs, you went too far, but just hang out. It's interesting. Uh, It's good stuff in there. Put the kids in the other room. All right, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter one, and we'll pick it up. And this uh, is a series we're going to hang out in Ecclesiastes today is very much like an overview. We got to know what we're talking about. Ecclesiastes one, verse one starts off. These are the, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So it's a fun book. <laughs> If, okay, so like, listen, church, if you're doing that thing, right, where you're just at a place in life where you just need some encouragement, you're down, and you just need like a word from God to like pick you up or something, and you do that thing where you're like, okay, Jesus, take the wheel, and you just open the Bible and just start reading a verse, if it lands on Ecclesiastes, I give you permission, you get another spin. Try it again. (laughs) Don't hang out in this verse. Like, go to a psalm. Go anywhere else but Ecclesiastes. Because this meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Like, there's just a whole lot more of that in these 12 chapters. And since we're doing a series on this enticing book, um, I'd like to make a couple of things kind of clear as we, as we go through. Number one, it's going to be pretty important to us to realize that even though the teacher is doing a lot of the talking, he is not the author of the book, there's like a scribe. And so let me, let me paint it for you this way. Uh, we've got a nice little group here called the Church Together, which is pretty awesome. There's actually a New Testament word, the first New Testament word to, used to describe the church in those days immediately following Jesus is a Greek word called ekklesia. It simply means gathering or an assembly. Some of you are thinking like your school assembly and there's a speaker on a stage with a microphone. It's like, yes, does this sound familiar? This is an ecclesia. And so what the book of Ecclesiastes is, is a gathering. It's an assembly. It's an ecclesia of a group of people that the teacher has gathered together. And then he's going to go on this 12 chapter long rant about the meaning of life or lack thereof. And it's going to get super bleak. So like, you know, thanks for showing up today. I hope you come back. But, but listen to me, he is not the author of the book. And it's important to realize that because by the time we get to chapter 12 and we like round this thing off, the teacher sits down and the person, maybe one of you who's like taking notes or or the scribe writing out the transcript of what he heard the teacher say, is finishing it off, and this is, you know, and then he sat down, and then he ends this fascinating epilogue or postscript on the entire thing. And we're actually going to get to that a little bit later today, and I think it's just going to frame the whole time together. But look, first, we have to know a little bit about the book that we're talking about and the teacher who's speaking, the, the sage on the stage, if you will, with all of these answers 
or maybe more questions than answers. Uh, this guy is the, called the teacher in the book throughout this time. He's called right here, as we heard, he's a son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's the capital city of, of ancient Israel. It's almost universally accepted to say that Solomon... Solomon was the son of David from that line. He was also uh, the next, the only son of David, the king with this united kingdom. Solomon is, is who we're talking about here. And it's important to know that it's Solomon because this guy, this guy was like successful in climbing those ladders. Like whatever ladder he set out to climb, he, he reached the top of it. I mean, if it's just geography, he was the guy that oversaw, that supervised the expansion of his kingdom to make it like the broadest reaching, the widest borders that ancient Israel had seen ever. It was only downhill from there. This is a guy who loved architecture, who loved building. He took his capital city in Jerusalem and said, hey, what would be fantastic is if we could bring some clean drinking water right here into the city and then also do something with the waste that is produced in the city so that if we got, if we got barricaded or bombarded, like they couldn't ever get in. Nobody's going to mess with us. He loved building. He built a, built a temple. Um, news outlet MSN.com did this like study on the, the world's richest people in human history. And Solomon makes the list. They kind of like add up the resources available to him and then tries to like put it in a comparable today's value. They came up with a number, $2.2 trillion net worth in today's value. I don't know how accurate that is, but like if, if they're off by a trillion, it's still like a monumental amount of money. I thought like Oprah was rich or Jeff Bezos or something. Like, no, 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 Solomon all the way, the resources that he had at his disposal. He actually, in this like landlocked kind of desert-y nation, found a way to like build it out to the sea and build the first port. And then he actually commissioned a navy to defend that port. Like whatever he did, he climbed to the top of the ladder at it. So I just... I think that gives him some credibility when he's talking about the kinds of ladders that you and I continue to climb today. And now that the teacher in this assembly where everybody's listening in and he's going, benefit from my wisdom or maybe lack thereof. He turns his attention not towards success, but towards this one thing right here. He turns his attention towards meaning. And he goes, if you want to live a meaningful life, if you want to develop or build for yourself a meaningful life, I don't have many answers. But I do have a couple of suggestions about what not to do. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. So that word, meaningless, it's, it's used like 40-something times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used a dozen different times by other biblical authors in different books of the Old Testament. It's this word, uh, I had to learn Hebrew in seminary, and so now I'm forcing you to learn it too. It's this Hebrew, that's how it works. It's this Hebrew word, hevel. It's a little word, it's used all the time, like I said, hevel. 
And sometimes like here, it's translated as meaningless. Other times, um, people in English, they try to like render it as something like purposelessness. Sometimes it's, it goes to vanity of vanities, which has like this anti-cosmetic kind of angle to it. And it's like, no, that's probably not super it. That was maybe good for a time, but not today. Others translate this hevel, meaningless, as the futility of futilities, uh, just the hollowness that's behind it. And it's like, yes, but we can't quite get to the concept because of how slippery it is, because of how many different contexts that it's used all the time. And so other places that it's used in the Bible by other people is translated as something like, like a breath. <sighs> or a vapor, or like a mist. And it's like, that's what we're talking about this morning. That, that, that's it. It's that breath, or that vapor, or that mist. When the author here is talking about like meaningless, it's all meaningless. He is talking not so much like, don't worry about buckling your seatbelt, on the way home today or going to work tomorrow. After all, he cares enough to actually get up in front of everybody and give a long speech. But he's talking about, he's making a comment about the, the temporal nature of it all. And he goes like, it's, it's, you know, it's here, I can see it. And then just as quickly as it came, it went. And other biblical authors pick up on this theme and they're like, this is like a picture of life, Hevel. It's here. It really is here. And if you try to grab onto it, you can't. But then it's gone. It's fleeting. It's short. I, um, the favorite part of my Tuesday and Thursday mornings, driving the kids into school, I, uh, I live in like the epitome of suburbia. And so we get out to what I think is like farmland and countries. I'm talking about 68th Street. It's like a few miles that way. And, uh, and we drive by this field. And on a crisp fall morning like this one, um, I look out and I can see over the field like this mist or this haze. I did not find this picture. I found it on the internet. I didn't take this picture. I found it. Um, there's like this haze or this vapor, this mist that's like sitting over the field and they're growing like, I don't know, grass or soybeans. Again, not a farmer. I have no idea. But like, it's gorgeous. And I'm driving through and it's a, a approximately three mile drive into the school where I drop the kids off. I'm like, kids, 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 look outside, look out the window, passenger side window, check it out. And it's just, it's beautiful. And they're like, cool, dad. And they'll go immediately back to what they're doing. And I'm saying, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't get it because, because that, that site, that's not going to be here for very long. It's going to be here for this morning, for right now. I promise you, when you get picked up from school, it will not be there. It might not even be there Tomorrow, this might be the last time that we get to see it for the year. Like, take just a moment and, like, appreciate it and soak it in. My friends, this is what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is describing as life. Life has this, like, mist or vapor to it all. He is not, again, making a comment about the futility of it, but he's, he's simply making a comment that if you're looking for that meaning, please believe me, he goes, I have climbed every relevant ladder there is to climb, and I've achieved the very, very top of it, and you know what I've learned? I've learned 
that ultimate meaning can never be found in temporary delights. I've discovered that again and again and again. I've thought maybe the delight was the problem, so I set my sight on something new. He goes through in his book and he addresses things like his own youth, his wealth, his house, his gardens, his harem of 700 mistresses. Super relatable, right? He, he talks about career advancement, social advancement, romance, and wealth. Climbing to the top of all of those ladders and he goes, I found time and time again that I cannot find ultimate meaning in these temporary delights. I think about of those words Tom mentioned earlier. And how as a kid, he, he grows up in Southern California, and, and he plays three sports as a high schooler, basketball, football, and baseball. And he has this dream of, of playing at the, at the next highest level there is, Division I football. And he actually gets a scholarship offer from the University of Michigan, go blue. And uh, he, he comes and he plays. He plays all four years. He actually gets playing time. How many touchdowns does Tom Brady throw in his debut as a quarterback at the, uh, at the college level? Zero touchdowns, one interception. <laughs> Try again the next year. He throws Zero touchdowns, but this time, zero interceptions. He's improving. <laughs> Three and four were kinder to him. He gets drafted. His childhood dream is fulfilled. We're talking like delights and pleasures. He gets the call. A club wants him to play at the highest level in the world, the National Football League. The New England Patriots draft him, not like one or two or 198, but 199. Like they draft him and they say, you're on our team, Tom. And he competes there and grinds it out there and achieves not one or two or five, but six Super Bowl championships. And the guy comes back and says, seriously, is this all there is? And can't you just hear the echo of the teacher behind him saying, do not make the mistake. Do not make the mistake of finding your ultimate meaning in a temporary delight. Don't do that. So maybe historical figures like Solomon, you know, isn't your thing. History wasn't much your thing. Maybe sports, athletics, not much your thing. Literature, writing. There's an author by the name of Anne Lamont. Uh, she writes her memoirs. They're witty and funny, very insightful, uh, engaging. And so a lot of people want to mimic her and, and want to know and benefit from her wisdom and how she set out. A lot of people who are like, hey, can you teach me about writing? And so what she does is what she does best. Um, she writes about the act of writing in her book, uh, Bird by Bird. And in the introductory pages of it, before the content of the book in general, I just want to read you just a, a, a bit of it because she's talking about aspiring writers and how all of these writers, they want so badly to like land the book contract. Like that's the thing that's going to make them. That is the dream after it all. And she tells them plainly, and she, she writes, she writes that writing will not bring financial security, peace of mind, and even joy are not guaranteed. Ruin, hysteria, bad skin, ugly financial problems, maybe. 
She says, but having books and stories and articles published will not open the doors that most of them hope for. It will not make them well. And then this line, again, haunts us. It will not give them the feeling that the world has finally validated their parking tickets, that they have in fact arrived. Somebody who climbs to the very, very top of that ladder and saying, you could be wildly successful at it, I should know, but there's a sense in which that ultimate meaning will never be given with a temporary delight. And we think that is jarring, that is bleak. That is only the first two verses of Ecclesiastes. It goes down even further. Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse three. What do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And then again on that, in verse 11, he picks it up again. He goes, no one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. No one remembers the previous generation. They come and they go. So I'd like to hope that like maybe something that I say at some point will stick with you. Maybe it will. But the problem is you're not going to stick around either. <laughs> Generations come and go. We will not be remembered the, the magnitude of the truth of this statement, and before we make a comment on that, I just want to highlight like how true this is. There's a, a teaching that I was doing to a group of people, and we kind of gathered around, and we're talking about, um, it, was a, it was a conversation about ethics, about morality, and so I could just kind of reach in, and I just grab a reference, right, that I'm like, oh, man, this is, um, this is somebody that's going to speak well, right? I'm like, hey, somebody, somebody really, really good, right? Somebody like this guy right here, this is Billy Graham. I mean, this guy, he's, he had a global reach. I didn't know this until like Googling it a little bit more, but I knew he was a big deal. He's a global reach that's estimated of somewhere around 2.5 billion, with a B, billion people that he shared the message and the hope of Jesus Christ with in his lifetime. That's crazy. Also, like Billy Graham, he was voted on a Gallup poll of the most admired men and women a record 61 times. It's an annual poll. 61 times the guy makes it onto the list. He was a pastor to presidents, every president from Harry Truman in the 1950s to Barack Obama much more recently. Like, this is like Billy Graham. Okay, so I'm talking about ethics and morality. And I'm like, hey, so like you got Billy Graham like up here. You know, I kind of like fill out my whole thing there. And somebody like raises their hand. And they go, just one quick question. It was a good question. They just asked simply, who? <laughs> And I'm like, oh, I hear the words of the teacher echoing again. Generations come, generations go. Even the former, no one remembers the former generations, even those yet to come won't be remembered. Like it's fleeting, it's brief, it's just like a mist. And just as quickly it's gone. So why do I share this with you? 
I, I promise you, I'm not just trying to like send you out on the most depressing note that I absolutely can. I think it's helpful to know. I think somebody has to say it and it might as well be the teacher in the Bible. Somebody has to say the thing that you won't find that ultimate meeting in something so temporary and short-lived. I think that once we can see it though, there's an element in which this is, life becomes so much more freeing. Because once we're not trying to like be captivated with making it to the top of whatever particular ladder that we're stuck on, once we know that life consists more than in that particular thing or this particular thing or really in anything that is so short and brief and just missed at the end of the day, I think it's freeing because once we can get over chasing after that, it's like we can go on with the business of actually living our lives for something that actually matters. I think embedded within the words that are repeated so many times in the book of Ecclesiastes is actually what the teacher and the scribe writing it down wants us to take away. This is another like word lesson on this whole thing. I said meaningless, meaningless. The word there is hevel. I just want to show you what this looks like in the language that it was written. Meaningless, hevel is on the top. Heckle is everything on the below. So it's Hevel, hevel, heckle, hevel. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Two words. Do you see something remarkable about what these two words look like on a page? They're like the identical word. You don't have to know anything about like the language in general just to say like, if this is like a where's Waldo or spot the difference or something like that, like I'm at a loss here. Where is it? Next slide, you can see. The only difference is that just this one little like swoop pull back that says this is actually a different letter. Other than that, they look exactly identical to each other. They sound the same. Hevel, hevel, heckle, hevel. It's like the author here is like making this literary and very poetic and I think beautiful point with the word choice that he uses and going like, all of it, every last created thing is like mist or vapor that's gone. So stop chasing after the mist and maybe start paying attention to the one uncreated element there is. The God behind the mist. I think that what he's pointing out to the people then and to all of us today is to simply say we, we, we make the mistake, don't we? We make the mistake of paying more attention to the mist than the one behind the mist. We make the mistake so often of loving too much the good things of God and not the giver of the things, God himself. And he's going, don't, don't conflate those things. Don't chase after the mist. Chase after the one behind the mist. There's this story in the New Testament in Acts chapter five that I love so much. In Acts chapter five, Peter is, uh, he's arrested by the religious uh, institution and he's talking about Jesus all the time and he will not simply quit. And they tell him, you have to quit, otherwise we will harm you. And he's going, bring it on, I don't care, paraphrasing. And, uh, and there's like this, this 
confrontation among the leaders at the time. They're like, what do we do with them? And one guy, a Pharisee, a Gamaliel, he, he's got some notoriety and some influence on the, on the team. And he stands up in Acts chapter 5 and he makes this awesome declaration. And, and he says to everybody listening in and, and to us today, and he goes, he goes, if this movement is from human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you cannot stop it because you'll be fighting against God. And it's like, if this is just missed, like it'll just, it's gone in a generation or two max. But if this thing is not from human origin, if it is from God, it will just go on and on and on. And listen, you cannot overcome it because you'll be fighting against God himself. This teacher gets to the very, very end of his book. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he talks about life and love and wealth and youth. He talks about everything there is under the sun. And he gets to the tail end and he sits down and it's like rant over. And then the scribe adds this epilogue onto Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. And the scribe adds in right at the end, now that all has been heard... Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. If you want something in your life that lasts, take it from the teacher, take it from the scribe. Don't chase the mist, chase the one behind the mist. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, you're the giver of every good thing. God, we ask this week that you help us to find a way to appreciate and to receive these good gifts appropriately to pass them on to others in need. God, but to never mistake them, to never tie them together, to, to, never, to never get too focused on the gifts instead of you, the giver. God, help us to not find our meaning and tie our security into these temporary delights. God, especially when something so much grander, something so much more awaits us. You, the giver of all good things, why would we settle for something you give us when we could have you? Jesus, thank you. Show us what it means this week to chase you, the one behind the mist. In your name we pray, amen.